Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. Eric Schmidt has been a U.S. Senator for a little less than six months. But he says that he's been able to make an impact not only on committees dealing with armed services and commerce, but also in moving the debate forward about administrative rules and technology companies. Schmidt joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about his impressions of the U.S. Senate and the ongoing struggle to raise the nation's debt ceiling. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio in St. Louis, he is somebody who is no stranger to Politically Speaking. I'm not sure if somebody has surpassed uh, your record amount of appearances on this show, perhaps uh, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, but returning, I believe, for the eighth time. Yeah. Eric Schmidt, great to be. And I made the intro. My voice is in the intro. That's a big deal. It, it I've is finally arrived. You, you are a huge deal. You wouldn't believe how many people want to be in that intro. <laughs> I've never bugged you about it, have I? I've never said anything. I just heard it for the first time, and I can't. I'm so proud that this this kid from Bridgeton has made the intro. I mean, you 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 didn't come from billions. You came from Bridgeton in order to make the politically speaking intro. That's why you've run for office in the first place. But enough of that. Um, you have been a U.S. Senator now for what six months, seven months? Not or? even January third. So um, whatever that whatever that is. Um, so five months. You know, yeah. It, we t- what is time, anyways? <laughs> you know, it's interesting seeing you transition back to being Senator Eric Schmidt. That's how I got to know you all these years. But being a U.S. Senator is a lot different than being a Missouri State Senator. Some would argue that you may have more power as a, a Missouri State Senator now than a U.S. senator in the minority, um, what would you say to those people? What can you do right now, given the divide in Washington? Well, I think been pretty effective. On the Commerce Committee, um, for example, um, there have been two nominees that the president put forward that have not gone through because uh, Republicans, and by the way, and Democrats, um, spiked those nominations. So there is there is more of an opportunity, I think, than people think to work together. Um, I just co-sponsored a bill with uh, Senator Hickenlooper from Colorado on um, commercial aircraft issues. And so anyway, I think there's some opportunities to do that. But uh, you know, being in the United States Senate, as is, is we've talked about, you know, just walking up here, it, it's surreal. I um, uh, Most of the swearing in was January 3rd. Most of my family, including my parents, had never even really been to Washington before and and to go there and be sworn in as the I think the actual was a round number the 2000th person ever sworn into the United States Senate was certainly very humbling and uh, 
you know, just just trying to make the most of it on behalf of the the people that I've been proud to represent. Uh, you you mentioned your ability to make uh, an impact on nominations, and you mentioned those two uh, nominees on the Commerce Committee. What about judicial nominations? I know you wanted to be on the Judiciary Committee and you didn't get a slot on it, but my understanding is you've still been able to impact discussion on that especially with the whole situation around uh, Dianne Feinstein being gone for several months. Yeah, I mean, in the Senate, it typically, um, uh, except on the judicial nominations now, um, but, you know, it's 60 votes to really proceed, right? So the Senate still maintains a filibuster. But on the judicial nominees, it's essentially a a simple majority moving forward. But, um, you know, there are, you know, Senator Manchin, Sinema, Tester, uh, Sherrod Brown, um, you know, the— these, uh, these are not automatic um, yeses on confirmations for them. And so I think you just try to make the case and make good decisions. Obviously, yeah, you mentioned judiciary, I think, give my experience. But I'll, I will tell you, uh, seniority is a, a very big thing in the U.S. Senate. And you have, like, none. <laughs> well, I, it, it, it's funny how they decide these things. Um, uh, Senator Britt. Uh, from Alabama comes from a smaller population state. We came in at the same time, so I am ahead of her. And she's never been elected to anything, too. Correct. But you don't get credit for AG service, You get, uh, which is interesting. Um, Th- that That is interesting. I mean, I guess Thomas Eagleton faced the same problem when he was elected U.S. Senator as Attorney General. Yeah, our, that's right. Or Josh Hawley, yeah, too. And, and, and then there's some neat things. I, I had posted this on Twitter. Um, I inherited the Harry Truman desk. Which had uh, you know Truman and you carve your name in there, Danforth, uh, Bond, Blunt. So there's a lot of great history. Thomas Hart Benton, our first senator. So you you uh, you learn to appreciate that for sure. I, I'm sure that the ghost of Harry S. Truman absolutely hates everything you stand for, but you never know. I don't think so. I think the Democrat Party in Harry Truman's day is a little different. I, 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 but by the way, by the way, uh, <laughs> as a graduate of Truman State University, uh-huh. um, Northeast Missouri proud. That's right. It used to be Northeast Missouri State University. It was. It was. And then um, uh, Tom Eagleton actually gave the commencement address at my graduation. Isn't that kind of what? What a full circle moment. Anyway, let's yep. talk about some of the legislation that you've sponsored. One of them is called the Erase Act, and that involves um, something about like regulations coming out of federal agencies. Talk about what it would do why you're putting it forward. Yeah, so I think in a, in a broad sense here, and this has been consistent um, in my time, uh, and certainly I think has been highlighted by recent events, but for me, our founders created a government uh, that was accountable to the people. That's the idea of self-government. You can send somebody there, you can send them home, you can send them back, but ultimately when you're voting on things, people can judge your record. I think what we've seen over the decades now is this growth of the administrative state. These unelected bureaucrats have way too much power over people's lives. And so um, with that legislation, which was the first one that I filed, it would require, if you're going to move forward a new regulational rule, you got to pull back three. So it does, I think, some important things of getting rid of things that maybe should have never, either they've outlasted their usefulness or never should have been a uh, uh, reg in the first place, but also gets people thinking really hard if they want to move one forward. And then we also filed um, uh, some other legislation, including the RAINS Act, which would make essentially Congress have to vote on these things. I think that um, if it's such a good idea, Congress should have to vote on it. And it also puts the power back in the Article One branch. Um, again, these unelected folks, and this is this. I don't believe this is a partisan issue. I just think it gets back to accountability in the Article One branch. Now, do you think that this could? Let's just say that former President Trump or Governor DeSantis or oh, who knows? Maybe your colleague Senator Tim Scott become president, and they're encountering a similarly divided Congress and decide to use the regulatory powers to 
you know, enact quote unquote conservative ideals. Isn't it possible that your legislation could ultimately backfire on Republicans to, you know, roll back or to actually pursue some conservative priorities? Look, this is about structural reform. Mm -hmm. And I and I believe deeply that the idea that these folks, um, you know, a thousand miles away from here who, you know, in the federal government, by the way, is supposed to be a government of limited powers. The states came together to create the federal government of limited powers. The state stands. And I think, you know, when you think of these things, that's kind of how we got to where we're at. And and, uh, and by the way, the Congress has a part to blame in this, too. They get to say, hey, I voted for the greatest bill in the world, but I can't believe what the EPA did. Right. So they've sort of willingly give this this power away. And the founders, I think, would be shocked. This wasn't the vision of self-government. And also, if you read the Federalist Papers, the idea was that each branch would jealously guard its power. Mm-hmm. And Article One branch has given it away in Congress. So anyway, to answer your question directly, maybe. But I think especially under the Reins Act, um, which I'm proud to sponsor, Congress would weigh in on it. So if it's a good idea, then you got to work to get it passed. Yeah. And I could also see the argument being that even even though like Congress passes specific statutes, there could be instances that arise that may not be specifically defined in statute. And that's where sort of the leeway of, of you know, executive branch agencies to, to have regulations kind of comes into play. Uh, I know that's more of an observation than a question, but what do you make of that argument that it could reduce flexibility to deal with real problems in this country. Well, I think you've seen, though, what you've seen now is these the abuses that have happened. And I think that um, when we're dealing with major questions, I will say that, you know, and not to get too in the weeds, I'm sure some eyes will glaze over on this one, but you there's did. something called Chevron deference, right, which is there was a court decision essentially d- decades ago that said that we're going to rely on the opinion of these experts. And by the way, this is the ghost of Woodrow Wilson, the worst president in the history of the country. This is something that the senator and I agree on uh, 100%. I, I hated Woodrow Wilson well before it was fashionable, but continue, <laughs> Senator. Me too, I guess. But anyway, so essentially you've seen this kind of this evolution over time. And it's not it's not good for the republic. And but in this, we were involved in this when I was AG in the West Virginia versus the EPA case. Essentially, the court narrowed that deference and said, "Look, if this is a question of major political or economic significance, we're not going to give this sort of deference to these agencies." So it narrowed the scope. But there's more work to do. And by the way. President Trump, for example, had a two-for-one rule. I mentioned the three-for-one. He had a two-for-one rule. Joe Biden got rid of it on day one. And so the whole point of all this is to codify this. And again, I don't think this has to be partisan. These are good government reforms. All right. I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question. I promise you, Senator, I'm not going to ask you to respond to every Missouri state government-based thing. But since we are talking about administrative rules, your successor as Attorney General Andrew Bailey instituted pretty stringent administrative emergency rules that would have restricted transgender health care for adults and minors. Um, so I guess what I'm going to ask you is, are you are you saying that it's OK to restrict the rulemaking ability of a Democratic president, but it's not? It's perfectly fine for a Republican attorney general of Missouri to do the same thing. Well, I think we have to look at, again, I talked about state versus federal. Um, you know, states essentially under the 10th Amendment retain the powers that were not granted willingly by the states. Right. So in general, generally speaking, states have more authority. Uh, and the attorney general of Missouri is obviously an important position. I, I, you know, I haven't reviewed that that closely on the technical grounds. I, I agree with the idea that, um, you know, for for children 
Um, this is a this is a very serious issue. So I, I understand philosophically where he's come from. I didn't review it like technically. I'm doing a, a different job, but I will say, yeah. But, but we, you don't support restrictions for adults, though, right? I think adults can make you know their own decisions here. Um, we're talking about kids. I think it's it's very it's very dangerous. Um, and and I think the revelations that came um, the revelations that came down from the Wash U whistleblower are very concerning and should be taken seriously. But but anyway, the point is also in the AG's office we had um, uh, we had in our defense in cases we did not advocate for administrative deference. We didn't. We just said the court needs to make these decisions. That was part of the, the three-legged stool, and not to go back in time, but we took on federal overreach. We limited the scope of what you could have from the state side, and then certainly uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, local governments, I mean, mask mandates are a great example, when they exceeded the authority that the General Assembly had given them, uh, we came in and said, you've exceeded that authority. So we were pretty consistent there. And I don't think you issued any emergency rules as attorney general either. So this was not a gotcha question like, why did you do emergency rules? But I do have to ask that question since it is top of sure. mind. We'll be right back on Politically Speaking with U.S. Senator Eric Schmidt. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. Let's move on to another bill that you sponsored about uh, big tech and Section 230 uh, protections, which for our listeners, Section 230 gives general immunity to technology companies uh, with, with respect to third party content created by users. Um, this involves like government, and I'm using your words, not mine, colluding with technology companies to censor people. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of explain what went behind this bill and what you're trying to do here? Well, certainly on the uh, when I was running for this office, one of the things that I promised the Missouri voters was that I was going to continue a lot of the work that I had done as AG. And one of those, I think, seminal lawsuits was the Missouri versus Biden case, which exposed before Twitter files, by the way, this collusion and coordination between the government and some of the biggest companies in the history of the world, these big tech giants. And so you had literally text messages between senior executives at Facebook and um, uh, the Surgeon General of the United States saying, take this down. Um, you know, it's illegal, of course, under the First Amendment for the, for the government to censor speech. They also don't get to outsource that to these big tech giants. And so what this bill does is it says, look, if you're going to do that, if you're going to engage in that activity as um, a big tech company, you are no longer going to receive the benefit of Section 230 protections, which limit their liability. I mean, they're essentially, when this was created in 1996 under the Telecommunications Act, the thinking was, look, the internet, which was kind of the new frontier, these are platforms, right? They're not publishers. They're not like news agencies where they have editing, you know, responsibilities or whatever. Uh, they're a platform. And when you when you no longer are a platform and you're now censoring, you don't get that liability protection. So the Collude Act would say, if you're engaged in that censorship enterprise, Section 230 protections are gone. Okay, so I'm going to use an outlandish example here. Let's say that I went on Twitter and I said, Senator Eric Schmidt hates Rage Against the Machine and thinks Freedom by Rage Against the Machine is the worst song ever written. And um, if your office— That would be factually incorrect. Yes, it's factually wrong because <laughs> you like both of those things. 
Now, if your office had decided to uh, email Elon Musk or whoever is running Twitter now and saying, hey, this is factually incorrect. Are you saying that if Elon Musk like bans me from Twitter, he would lose Section 230 uh, protections? If, if I'm colluding or using the power of the government to shut down your ability to say something that's not true, yes. And so here's the thing. I gave a commencement address at UMKC a few years ago. And it was on the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the very important hallmarks of what it means to be an American is the idea that you're willing to defend somebody's right to say something you vehemently disagree with. And um, that might be factually untrue, but the response to that isn't censorship. The response is then for me to engage and say, Jason Rosenbaum has this wrong. Rage Against the Machine, I'm a Gen Xer. I listened to it. Freedom was my walk-up song on this very program that Jason Rosenbaum said they would probably hate that. And I said, well, that's, this is America. So I would respond with more speech, I guess, is the point. Yeah. And I OK, I'll be honest. I haven't followed the Twitter files intimately, but I have to imagine a lot of this was like, you know, you mentioned the Surgeon General or the CDC telling Twitter like, hey, the vaccines don't cause DNA mutations or, hey, the vaccines don't have microchips in them or you know, all these other outlandish things that have been said. And I'll, I'll admit there were some outlandish things on the left, too. I'm not just you know, criticizing that part. But what would be what I guess I guess my my question is if, if there is like a lot of wrong things being said on a social media platform and it's spreading like wildfire and it's causing people to think that the vaccines have microchips in them. What exactly is wrong with the CDC telling Twitter to stop that sort because of thing? Because of the government and they yeah. don't get to tell you what you can say or think. They don't. And if, if that were, you know, whatever, if they were going to object to it, they would object with more speech. By the way, people were being taken down and deplatformed for saying things like masks are relatively ineffective. And that actually, by the way, has proven to be true. And so and you should have a debate about it. And if you don't agree with that, then you could point yeah, to it. But I, I'm sure that there are competing studies that say okay. the mass did work. But I understand your point. You understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, and yeah. so I think a lot of things. And I'll give you another example. We not only in that lawsuit took the deposition of Dr. Fauci, we also took the, defi- the deposition of an, of an FBI agent, Elvis Chan, who was having monthly and weekly meetings with these Facebook giants. They had the Hunter Biden laptop. They were saying it was going to be part of a Russian hack and leak operation. Like, this is incredibly dangerous that the government would be working so closely with, you know, whether it's big tech or the media. And I just think, um, and I'm not ascribing this to you, but in particular, and particularly with, um, with journalists, put your red or blue jersey off and everybody votes, whatever, that's their right to do. But this is an incredibly dangerous situation in my view. It ought to scare the bejesus out of people. I don't care who you vote for, what your political stripe is, that the government is this involved with what people can say or what they can hear or what they can see. Okay, I mentioned Musk earlier, and he's gotten into a lot of controversy because he's bending to the will of the Turkish government and censoring tweets about um, the Turkish elections. So obviously, I I understand that the United States government can only do so much, but would your bill punish him for censoring speech at the behest of authoritarian countries like Turkey? Well, we're dealing with with the First Amendment right that Americans have, you know, in our Constitution. I'm not really getting into Turkish disputes that I'm unaware of 
Um, well, but, you're aware of them now. I think, now that, that I think would you agree that that's wrong? Uh, I, know, I know. I don't agree. Yes, I don't agree with that. But unfortunately, a lot of parts of the world, which we, we take for granted, I think, in this country, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that people don't have the ability to say what they want to say or speak their minds. And that's wrong. I would object to that. I think our great legacy as a country is that we believe that our rights come from our creator and that government's role is to protect those rights, not infringe upon those rights. And the First Amendment is first among those. Now, before we move on to the debt ceiling, it is not a secret. You don't have to pull out your phone and scroll through my tweets like um, some people would. That I'm not a fan of Elon Musk's uh, stewardship of Twitter. I think he's done a terrible job. I think Twitter is significantly worse. I actually want to thank Elon Musk because I've used Twitter significantly less since he took over, and my mental health has improved. <laughs> Good for you. But, but I, I said this on Sailors on the Air, and I want you to respond to this. I had a feeling because Elon Musk taught, you know, when he tweets, you know, what would be considered by some to be conservative political views that Republicans were going to basically give him a pass and just defend him at every turn. I mean, you're on the Commerce Committee. There could be some Twitter related things that come before you. Are you just going to give him a pass because he espouses conservative viewpoints? Are you going to hold him accountable for some of the things that may be, you know, run afoul of actual like federal laws or FTC or whatever. Well, I think the Clued Act we've just been talking about could very well do that, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not giving Twitter a free pass because Elon Musk bought them. My idea is that this ought to be a platform where people can express their points of view. The other important thing here, Jason, is the First Amendment really is our pressure release valve. Most disputes around the world, even to this day, certainly in 1776, were decided through political violence. Right. And I think it's an important idea to know that this is how it's the beating heart of the Constitution. It's a way that we release pressure. People can say what they want to say in the in the town square and they ought to be able to say that in the virtual town square. But I listen, I admire him for what he's done. I think he would probably take issue with calling him a conservative. I don't know if that's what he is or not. He was on Bill Maher's show. Yeah. Who, I, I, by the way, Bill Maher considered himself a liberal. And it feels like, you know, he's kind of seen that this this sort of. um uh, narrowing of the bandwidth of what people can say and not say is just not healthy for us. Yeah, I, I don't. Agree. Honestly, I don't be- know if he believes in anything. I, it may all be performative, <laughs> except I do think that, um, well, I'm going to move on. I could go down this Twitter rabbit hole, but we have a limited amount of time. Debt ceiling right now, there's still this standoff between Republicans that want significant uh, reductions in spending in exchange mm-hmm. for raising the debt ceiling. You're, you're one of those people. Yes. I want you to explain why. I don't think this is sustainable. I think the idea that um, we spend with reckless abandon, it just it cannot sustain itself. I mean, even in, in Joe Biden's new budget, $7 trillion worth of spending, $5 trillion worth of revenue, this just doesn't add up. I think the things that are being talked about, like clawing back um, the COVID dollars that, that haven't been spent, work requirements, you know, the 87,000 new IRS agents, those are very reasonable. And so uh, I think we need to have spending reform. It's certainly something that I talked about a lot on the campaign trail. And when you when you run three times in six years for statewide office in Missouri, you get around the state and you hear people. And I think people don't understand how Washington, D.C. just doesn't play by the same rules, not just of their family budgets, but even the state of Missouri has to balance their budget. So um, I think that this is something that's really important. Now, uh, you probably have heard Democrats and the president say, like, you shouldn't hold the nation's credit hostage. Um, But let's let's take that aside. The Republicans control the House. The Democrats control the Senate. So I can't imagine that the final deal is not going to have something that Republicans will not vote for. So with that dynamic in place, are you confident, even if you don't get everything you want, 
you may get some things you want. I don't know what those negotiations are ultimately going to yield. Um, and as you know, as we are recording this um, on May eighteenth, two thousand twenty-three, at five forty p.m. with fifteen <laughs> seconds, it kind of ruins sometimes when you roll out the show. I know, but I think that's it, for this in particular. No, it's this, important to know. This makes sense. Yeah. Um, but uh, but look, the reality is that this negotiation is really lays at at the feet of um, uh, Joe Biden coming to the table, which he's his people have in the last day or so, and and the speaker. Um, and so that's where these negotiations are at, and uh, we'll see what comes from it. But certainly, I've been supportive. I, I appreciate the fact that the House was able, to, you know, to move something forward, and we're going to have a real debate about what this thing looks like. Do you, but you think there'll be some sort of deal? Like I kiss can't there. We've seen this movie many times where the debt ceiling was about to expire, and eventually there's a deal because default is so catastrophic that. You know, it would probably make the Great Depression look like the Roaring Twenties. So it seems like, is this is there really like actual possibility that we default here? That I guess is my question. Well, it took almost a hundred days for for Joe Biden to come to the table, and maybe they were just waiting to see what the House was going to do. But um, but I, I don't like the idea of the brinksmanship at the end. And by the way, it raises a much larger issue of. Um, getting back to regular order in the United States Senate, uh, it may surprise many people. There's not actually a budget. There's not actually appropriation bills that move forward. That has to change. These are kind of the structural things that need to happen that, that I would hope that Republicans and Democrats can agree upon. And I will tell you, in my conversations with senators of both parties, I think people want to get to that. But there's immense power, Jason, in just a few people deciding things at the deadline, and we've got to get away from that. What about a talking filibuster? I know I, I think that the talking filibuster that the Missouri Senate has um, can be a very powerful tool because it forces senators to actually stand up and talk. I just have I can't imagine, though, that that's going to be brought to the U.S. Senate. But what what do you think? About I that don't idea? I doubt it. I think this I think the 60 vote threshold is very important. And I will. T- and I listen. I, this is my opinion. I've, I've mentioned it many times. I think it would be um, uh, catastrophic for the republic if we moved away from that. I think that you've got, uh, and but right now, the Democrats are just a couple of votes away from ending the filibuster. They want to pack the court, add states to the union, federalize elections. That would be um, a disaster because once you go down that road, let's just take court packing. Once you say 13, well, why not 20? Why not 50? Why not 100? Uh, and you go down this sort of banana republic road. So anyway, I think it's important to maintain the 60, which is where the Senate's at. I, th- I think there should be 300 Supreme Court justices, <laughs> but that's for another day. My last topic before I let you go is about presidential election impact on Congress. How do you think the GOP primary for president will affect uh, how the Republican caucuses in the House and Senate view certain issues and, and strategize on things? I, I, I don't see that so far. I mean, I was I was very early and one of the first senators to come out and support um, President Trump. I think what we had, you know, we had a dynamic economy, rising, um, you know, incredible wage growth, a secure border, energy dominance. So those are the reasons why, you know, I'm supporting the president. Um, look, it's very likely that uh, Senator Tim Scott, who's in our conferences is going to be running. I mean, I, I think that's going to happen. The, the, I would just tell you that that people, um, in my experience so far, want to work on the issues. I just don't think those are going to, I mean, those are going to be decisions that people need to make about who they endorse and who they talk about. But as far as the legislating, I think a more dominant factor, Jason, would be that we have divided government. Mm-hmm. We have a Republican House and a Democrat-controlled Senate and a, and a Democrat in the White House. That's probably going to have more to do with the dynamic. I, I can think of one issue, and again, full disclosure, I'm half Ukrainian. I have strong opinions about this. 
But um, I'm just going to be talking about this in pure political terms. So, you know, pres former President Trump is very opposed to Ukraine funding. Uh, Ron DeSantis has been skeptical of it. Um, but and, and also, I'll just I mean, I'll be candid. Like there is a pretty strong undercurrent among Republican voters that they don't want a infinite blank check for Ukraine forever. But that doesn't seem to be trickling down to Republican members of the House and Senate, there still seems to be pretty strong support for Ukraine funding and for a long time. Could you see that sort of thing impacting uh, debate on that issue, which is top of mind to you since you are on the Arm Armed Services Committee? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I will tell you that uh, my my focus ha on that committee, which is a, a incredibly important committee, I'm proud to serve on it, um, and Missouri has obviously white men in Fort Leonard Wood, but beyond that, our attention, I think that um, is needs to be um, more sharpened on China and mm -hmm. their their intentions. I mean, it had a spy balloon, of course, traverse across the continental United States, including Missouri, which I think opened a lot of people's eyes about what's really going on there. The truth is, and I'm not disclosing any any um, confidential information or top secret information. I mean, they've built islands in the South China Sea and have fully weaponized these islands. They are playing for keeps. They're in space. Um, so we have a, a multi-front sort of uh, competitor here, and uh, we need to take that very seriously. So, you know, my particular focus on that on that committee has been related to China. But I, I think, look, people are going to have their own opinions, but you've got people who've been in the Senate for a long time who have uh, deeply held positions, and, and we'll see where it all shakes out. And uh, finally, I would be remiss because I think you're on the space subcommittee. Mm -hmm. Do you want to be like uh, former Senator Bill Nelson and be the tallest man to be sent into space? <laughs> I don't think they send six six people into space. I, I, you you got to break I, some ground. I, yeah, well, I just made the intro on the show. I'm good. Oh, on that note, Senator, it was a pleasure to talk with you. We will be having you back. Uh, for the next six years and beyond, because this has been very enjoyable and very informative to our listeners. Politically Speaking is a product of the St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can find all of our stories at stlpr.org. And Senator, how could people find you on social media or any other place you want to be found? They can go to the official um, Senate site, which is uh, Schmidt.Senate. Gov, and um, and I'm also on the Twitter machine at Eric underscore Schmidt and the Insties and the Facebooks and all that stuff. Yeah, so I've, I've seen your reels on the Cardinals. They're really I, – I, and, and you have some good family pictures too. Yeah, it's fun. And uh, I'm doing the congressional baseball game, so we'll probably have some content about it. It's, by the way, practice uh, starts at 545 in the morning, D.C. time. That is 445 in the morning in St. Louis. It's very early, if but you, I'm enjoying if it. If you have three kids, that is basically when you usually <laughs> wake up until next time. So long. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East, we put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.